working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey there, everyone. You're listening to the podcast Working Drummer, and I'm Zach Albetta. This week, we talk with Herman Matthews, who has had a long and varied career based in L.A., playing with some of the biggest names in music, including Tom Jones, Kenny Loggins, and Tower of Power. He's currently the touring drummer for Timothy B. Schmidt of Eagles fame and also stays busy playing locally in L.A. when he's not touring. Over the years, he's developed some really useful philosophies about becoming a feel specialist, finding his sound, filling in for other drummers, making a gig his own, and adapting to the many musical and economic trends that he's observed. Thanks to everyone who participated in our survey at WorkingDrummer.net, and thanks to Aquarian Drumheads for furnishing prizes. Congratulations to our winners, Kurt Copeland of Midland, Texas, David Michal in Kelowna, British Columbia, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and Ryan Ross of Mount Juliet, Tennessee. We'll be doing more surveys with more prizes in the future, so keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, follow us on social media, keep posting your pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer, and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We're sponsored this week by Sonar Drums, and here's Matt Krause to tell you a little more about that. We all love vintage gear, and I bet you know someone that owns an old Les Paul or maybe a 56 Fender Strat that never leaves the home. And the question is, why do we love this gear? It looks cool. It gives you that warm, handcrafted tone and often brings a unique vibe to the music. Of course, it has its limitations, and if we're talking drums, we run into problems like its fragility, limited tuning. So where am I going with this? Well, once again, I went back out to KHS America in Mount Juliet, Tennessee to spend some time with some vintage gear. I'm talking about the Sonar Vintage Series Kit. I had seen and heard these at Summer NAM, but now I had a little one-on-one with these beautiful drums. Some specs you should know that make these drums uh, a modern vintage kit. The shells are that hand-selected premium German beach shell with rounded bearing edges. Keep in mind, This comes from the same forest of beechwood trees that were used in the manufacturing of sonar drums from the 1960s. The recreated teardrop lugs are a big deal. They look and feel just like the original, but now it has sonar's exclusive tune safe system. In other words, they stay in tune. There are many beautiful finishes you can choose from, like the Vintage Pearl and my favorite, the Red Oyster. It looks, sounds, and feels like a vintage kit, but maintains the quality and reliability of a modern kit. You could really call this a modern vintage kit. So go to us.sonar.com to learn more about the vintage series and find a dealer near you. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Herman Matthews. I think you'll agree he's a very warm and gracious dude with a lot of down-to-earth wisdom. So here we go. First off, I'd, I'm just interested in, in what you're up to right now. You have a long resume going back decades, and we'll get into it, but, uh, but what's keeping you busy right now? Well, what's keeping me busy right now, um, Timothy B. Schmidt, uh, the bassist uh, with the Eagles and formerly of Poco, mm-hmm. um, he is, uh, he's about to do a tour in January of all months, and, um, and I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that usually doesn't happen, right? Um, but we're, we're going out for about three weeks and promoting his new record, 
which is called Leap of Faith. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, I don't know, every time we go out, we do a week or two rehearsals before that. So, so what I'm saying, my latter part of December and all of January is booked with Timothy. Awesome. Uh, that I'm breaking in a new drum kit, so I'm trying to. Uh, I am too. Make all of that happen. <laughs> <laughs> what'd okay. You, what'd you get? Well, you know, I'm with DW, and I've mm-hmm. been with them since, God, since '89, I guess. Wow. But uh, they're uh, they're uh, uh, they're new Purple Heart. You're the second person that's told me about that, man. Larry Aberman was talking about that. Kit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty stoked. Yeah. Pretty I, stoked. I, yeah. I know the feeling. I just I just got a, a Sakai trilogy series. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So breaking that in and dialing it in. Yeah. I know. New toys. It's like it's like, you know, we become kids when those uh, drums come in. Oh, totally. Like- <laughs> totally. My like my wife just is laughing at me because I'm all giddy and jumping up and down and clapping my hands. Like, my know. wife is saying, You need another drum kit? <laughs> <laughs> How many can you play at one time? <laughs> so, you My, know. Mine was cool. She she heard me talking about, you know, these drums for, you know, who knows how many years. And finally, about a month ago, she was like, enough. Just get the drums <laughs> and shut up about it. Right. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to hear it anymore. Just get them and shut up. <laughs> I love it. I know. Um, I know. So how long uh, how long have you been doing the, the Timothy Schmidt gig? Well, Timothy... <laughs> It's funny. Um, uh, uh, I guess it all first came to light in 09. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a record out at that time called Expando. And uh, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but 09 has been a while. Yeah. Um, um, I had just uh, left the Tom Jones gig. Mm-hmm. I say left. I'm sorry. You know what? The whole band was fired. We were all fired. Okay. So, <laughs> Tell it so, like it is now. So, yeah, right. We were all fired. Um, and I was just uh, looking for, you know, something, anything. And um, I got a call uh, to uh, Timothy wanted to hear about two or three drummers. And I went and, and, and auditioned something I hadn't done in a while. And um, he wanted a singing drummer. Hmm. So... Um, I went down and did that. And in 09, I think we went out for maybe three weeks, three or four weeks. And then he went on tour with the other band that he was with, the Eagles. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oh, those guys. Those guys. Uh, and then we went on again in, in 2012 mm-hmm. for about the same amount of time. And then he went back out with the Eagles. Um, and then we just recently did a week in Nashville and did a couple of dates, uh, like in Atlanta, just kind of testing the waters and seeing how the record goes, mm-hmm. um, or how the record would be, you know, received, I guess. I, I didn't uh, get wind of that. I'm, I'm in Atlanta. I, I would have come check you out. But I, you know, what is the name of that place that we played? Um, which is kind of the, the something winery. Uh, oh, wine, city winery. Wine. Yes. Yeah. There's yes, one in yes. Nashville too. And one right. in, Chicago and all over. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was it was one of those things. It was almost a showcase kind of a thing. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to be back by. And, and, and when we do, I'll get your tickets. I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so that, that, that's how that came about. Um, the gig is a – it's warm and gentle and yeah. a very, very quiet gig. And, and, and 
uh, and I play the biggest rig that I've ever played right in my right. life uh, because I'm playing drums and percussion. Mm-hmm. So okay. you know, I have a djembe and and you know, and then all the little toys that that uh, you know Keltner has played on some of the records, and so I'm having to kind of fill his shoes and. Right. And that ain't easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, now you said you said Timothy was wanted a singing drummer. Was that were you known as a singing drummer before that, or was that something that you had to develop for that gig? No, you know what? It's funny when uh, playing in Houston and uh, playing in bands there. I did sing. Mm-hmm. I, I was always I was a person who had character. <laughs> you know when he's saying. Um, uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't consider myself the best singer, um, uh, but I uh, but I can hold my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I worked with acts like um, or artists like uh, Kenny Loggins and Richard Marks, singing came into play. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I mean, I have a good ear, um, uh, so I use it when I use it. Yeah, uh, it's not like you know I'm not going. Hey, man, I can sing. Right, but if they need another part. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you mentioned that uh, the the Tom Jones band had been fired. Um, <laughs> I've, I've talked to other drummers on this podcast about uh, you know moments in your career when when the bottom drops drops out and the rug gets pulled out from under you unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, talk about your uh, just sort of your mental state during that time and what your first steps were. Um, as you were, you know, trying to get something else going. Let's see, anger, <laughs> denial. Uh, <laughs> those, those five steps of right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, you, you know, it 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 kind of came as a surprise mm-hmm. because uh, I was with Tom Jones for about seven and a half years, mm-hmm. and there were some people uh, that were with him for seventeen years. Now, it could have been just a thing where Tom was just. He wanted a change. He right. wanted, you know, um, uh, I come from the world. If, if we're making too much money, talk to us and maybe we can renegotiate. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want a different look, talk to us and maybe we can make that happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, we did everything that, um, you know, just to my knowledge, we did everything that they wanted us to do. Right. Uh, but, but, but still, it was a great band. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the rug was pulled out from under us. Um, I mean, I know members in that group who lost their houses. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm pretty fortunate, meaning that I always keep the, the local gigs going when I'm here. Right. You know, I'm always playing with somebody. Right. I mean, you know, I have drums, we'll travel. I'm the biggest whore in town. <laughs> so, um, um, so, so I was pretty fortunate in that way. And don't get me wrong. It, it was, it was a hardship. Yeah. Um, uh, only because, and the reason why it stung real hard to me, um, uh, is because I did all of the Bonnie Raitt and Taj Mahal TV show or, or uh, what do you call it, promo mm-hmm. um, for their tour. And they asked if I would come out on the road with them. Right. And um, I think originally Tony Braunagel was going to do it, but then he got tied up. Um, uh, so I said, let me ask Tom Jones, yeah. you know, because I've been with him for seven years. So when I asked, they uh, they said, of course, we're going out this summer. I said, Okay. So I, you know, declined on the on the Taj Mahal and Bonnie Raitt thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then six weeks before the summer tour with Tom Jones, oh. 
he said, got some news, fellas. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. Um, yeah. But, you know, that that's the only thing that I'm dark about. I mean, I, I cannot complain about seven and a half years. I mean, that is right. – I mean that's a great run, yeah. And, and some of the guys have been even longer. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm 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 thankful for that. It's just that you know, six weeks, which you know, technically it's it's a legal time. You know, yeah. it, it's more than two weeks' notice. Uh, it just <laughs> it just didn't give me enough time to uh, to get back with any other road tours. Right, right. But that, there you go. Yeah, um, and that, man, that's especially a drag because like if you if you had gotten offered a, another gig that was just kind of a money gig and you lost right. out on the money, that would be yeah. one thing. But something as right. cool as Bonnie Raitt and Taj Mahal, man. Right. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. That's all right. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, now we're good. <laughs> if, man, if that's a call for a gig, you better get it. No, you know. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 There you go. All right. um, but yeah, Bonnie Raitt and Taj Mahal are are two of my favorites. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, just great stuff. And 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 with that, you know, that being that kind of music, it's sort of the stuff that I grew up on. Right. So, so right. anyways, that's the way it goes. Well, talking about the stuff you grew up on, you you did most of your growing up in Houston, Texas, right? Mostly, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I was I was born in Houston, and yes, yes, yeah. So I don't I don't know how how connected you still are to the music scene there, but but talk about that town and, and the musical traditions that uh, that you came up on. What was what was great about Houston at the time that I came, you know, the time I was playing there, um, uh, it was sort of a small town musically. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I went to the high school for the performing and visual arts, uh, which was the second school built after the performing arts school that Larry went to. As a matter of fact, Larry. Aberman. Oh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Gotcha. Um, uh, uh, so, so with it being a fine arts school, mm-hmm. um, we had the opportunity to play with the acts that came through town. Whenever you know, like they, they couldn't find the union members to to fulfill those chairs, right. or if they needed a percussionist that can read, or or needed a, a string section, mm-hmm. they would call the school. You know, uh, and we had the opportunity of playing with. Wayne Newton and and Neil Sadaka and and, play, <laughs> and you know Engelbert Humperdinck you know when we were in high school yeah um, and uh, so, so that was amazing um, growing up and playing the scene there uh, you know it was the jazz scene it was a it was a a soul R and B scene yeah. it was a top forty scene mm-hmm. uh, um, and like everywhere else yeah. Um, and 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 also you had the country thing that you kind of sort of had to get into, mm-hmm. um, and then we also had a strong force in the studios there, um, uh, like with jingles and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. If Chicago was the number one place for for jingles, Dallas was number two, mm-hmm. and then Houston was slowly um, making their mark. Yeah, 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 you know so. So it, it was cool. Yeah, and you started out playing in uh, in your uncle's organ band. It was like a blues trio, like right. It was a blues trio. This is back. I mean, my goodness. Uh, I said I lived in Alaska for three years. Got back from uh, uh, moved back to Houston, and I guess I was 10, 11 years old. <laughs> and um, and and my 
my uncle, who always played organ and 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 uh, played in little cafes or little joints around in, in Houston, was looking to kind of put an act together mm-hmm. and with with my cousin and, um, and and with me and and that was the shtick. And we yeah. played we played blues, you know, five six nights a week. Family band. Yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah. So you were cut, you were cutting your teeth from an early age, just on on the local gigs, on the clubs, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, like I say, the clubs. My mother called them juke joints, right? You know? Right. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, but but it was, and she wasn't all that happy with me, you know, coming in after midnight every night too, you know. Yeah. So, because like after we played, we always had to help load the B three along with the lesson. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, move that, that was, furniture, boy. I think that's the real reason why he had the two of us playing with him. So roadies. Yeah. Well, it's cool. Like I, I wasn't really. Um, I, I was hip to the term juke joint before I moved to Atlanta a year ago. But right. after I've been down here, like I played a couple, and I've kind of, you know learned what the what the vibe is like in those um right. I'm, I'm playing in a great blues band called delta moon and uh we played you know like a, a festival thing and um a theater type thing and then we played blind willies in uh in wow. Atlanta. Yeah. um and i was i was kind of sweating it at blind willies because like i missed a couple hits i missed a couple breaks like i was <laughs> i was new to the band you know still right right, um, right and it was a long gig like we had done one set gigs before but this was like a three set evening you know? <laughs> right so on the set break i was i was kind of like sweating it like man i'm sorry i missed that break and and the the bassist frainer joseph was like man we're just at a juke joint it's loose like it's <laughs> you know. hey, go have a beer <laughs> you have to give the what do you call it you have to you know turn the don't give a shitter down and <laughs> just have some fun you right, know? right. I, I definitely know that i understand that. yeah um i understand that so does um do you think that uh that those first experiences playing in those kind of places has has kept you connected to the local scene like even in LA when uh you know you get work in the studio you get work touring but like you said in yeah. between all that stuff you're in the local joints with local musicians yeah yeah i mean you know for me i don't have a you know I, I mean that's sort of how I practice, if you will. I mean, you yeah. know, I I kind of keep my chops up in that way. Um, there is a band that I play with uh, called Teresa James and the Rhythm Tramps, mm-hmm. and, and and they're not so much well, I guess they're not so much a local band, although they are a local band. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just trying to get on the next level of making things happen. Right. Um, you've heard her sing before, mm-hmm. uh, just because she's she's been on just about everyone's records, and she's Bonnie Raitt's favorite singer. And and you would think that she sounded like Bonnie Raitt, mm-hmm. but um, um, so there's a lot of things that goes on with them in town, and uh, I try to make as many of those as I can. Playing blues with my uncle, you know, I swore when I moved to LA that I would never play another blues gig again. <laughs> again. Uh-huh. I was I was tired of playing shuffles and mumbos and and oh, actually it was an organ trio. There weren't there weren't many mumbos. It was just twelve way blues and and the break tune would be a shuffle. Right. Um, but of course I moved here and all I got called for were blues gigs. Yep. You know? So, yep. so I, I, I am thankful for that. Though. Yeah, I, I had the same experience moving to LA because I was there for five years um, and I moved okay. I moved there from Kansas City where I played almost exclusively jazz 
And, right. you know, part of part of my objective in moving to L.A. was branching out into other stuff. It's like I've, right. I've played enough jazz for now. I want to I want to do some other. And I did get to branch out, you know, some. But, uh, you know, I, I was I was pegged for a jazzer very quickly. Oh, and oh, you know, it was it was yeah. hard to break into other circles and get calls right. from those other people because they just think, well, he's a jazzer. Well, you know what? That's I don't know if it's that way everywhere, but I know in L.A., that's a pain in the ass, man. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, uh, it's, it's like they don't think of me as a a, a guy who can play country music or right. uh, or or anything else other than say the last touring thing I was with. Right. I mean, I was with I was with Tower of Power, so now they think that this big black guy, all he plays is funk music. <laughs> and no, that's not the case. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's a lot of things. Uh, um, but wait a minute, wait a minute. You said so. Are you from Kansas City? Uh, no, I'm originally from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, I went to grad school in Kansas City and spent seven years there. Um, yeah, okay. Gigging on the scene there, and then went great, to LA. Great music town, man. Wonderful music town. I've great had a, music. I've had a few Kansas City drummers on the podcast. Wow! Um, so, so not only a great music town, but you have good barbecue. Oh, dude, it's the Napa Valley of barbecue. But between Gates and what is it, Arthur Bryant's? Yep. Is that it? Yep. My, my goodness, man! I know all kinds of stuff. Yeah. There's Gates, Gates and Arthur Bryant's are like the the Hatfields and the McCoys of, of the barbecue world. <laughs> and and I've been I've been a Bryant's man like from from the beginning. But I'll tell you, for those listening or those traveling to Kansas City, Joe's Kansas City barbecue is like it's it's right up there now for me. It's <laughs> yeah, you know, Joe's. Did that come along after? It came it came after them, right? Well, for years it was Oklahoma Joe's. And, uh, okay, okay, okay. And they okay. recently changed the name to Joe's Kansas City. Right. Um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, th- th- <laughs> it reminded me of something I, I wanted to ask you about, which was, you know, m- my experience going to L.A. And it sounds like yours was it was it was kind of hard to break out of, um, you know, what you were what you were good at or what you were known for or what right. people assumed you were good at. Um, right. And in L.A. with a with a town as deep as that, um, if you want to get involved in three or four different styles of music. Right. It seems like you got to get in line behind a bunch of guys who only do one. Right. You know, so That's what, right. was, what was your approach to, uh, you know, being a specialist versus being versatile and, and overcoming um, some people's perception that you were just kind of a one trick pony or that you. you right. Know, were right. Good at one thing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're so right. Um, L.A., I mean, it was the first place I had ever been to where everyone specialized in one thing mm-hmm. and, and and they excelled and they were great. And, I mean, you know, if you wanted a certain kind of groove or a certain kind of pocket, you would call a certain guy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, it was kind of weird. I first came here. I was fortunate. Um, I decided to move to L.A. and um, literally three days later. I got a call from Kirk Whalem saying, hey, man, I want you to be in my band. Um, The only thing is you're going to have to move to L.A. So I went, (laughs) let me think about it. You know, okay, sure. So so my second night in L.A., uh, I played the baked potato for two nights. Wow. So those two nights um, with Kirk Whalem being the up and coming you know, the star mm-hmm. of saxophonists uh, or saxophonists. <laughs> um, uh, um, I mean, I got, I think, my next two or three gigs from that because yeah. everyone was in the audience. You know, I got an audition with Al Jarreau. I got uh, um, an audition with Kenny Loggins. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, and I, and I got uh, 
the Bob James gig. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 okay. So when I came to town and thinking that I wanted to be the next Vinny Caliuta, yeah, you know, I couldn't do that because Vinny and, and, and those that really came, you know, after him played it so well. Right. It's like, who that, am I kidding? That gig you is know? taken. <laughs> oh my, Oh my God. On, on so many levels. Um, um, so, so the one thing that I did notice there weren't many high-profile groove drummers mm-hmm. or field drummers, as we call them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think Michael White was out with Mays, you know, uh, Frankie Beverly and Mays. Uh, um, um, Jonathan Moffat was out with either, uh, I think Madonna at that time. This is yeah. like in '89. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ricky Lawson was out with Michael Jackson. Right. I mean, you know, it's like all the guys who I consider the the. Guy, the people who understand pocket and, and really make that happen. Now, granted, that is a one-trick pony kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 not one-trick pony. It's a thing that they do well. I right. should say that. Right. And the thing they make happen. Um, so, so, so those gigs around town kind of sort of were opening up that they would do. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, so I jumped into that. Yeah. And I kind of sort of became that groove guy. You mm-hmm. know that that field drummer you know so um and and i'm not mad at him for that yeah so i'm um i'm thankful that all of that happened when it did Mm -hmm. um and so i guess now i'm sort of known for that but they're pleasantly surprised when you know i'll do a bebop thing or you know or you know i'll do a latin thing or or do you know or country music as you said earlier Mm -hmm. um uh, as a matter of fact, I did a gig not very long ago, and and it was a Christmas gig. And in the middle of it, the solo section had this burning bebop section. Huh. And you know, and the drummers outside said, "Man, I didn't know you can spang a lane." You know, <laughs> so I was like, "Why not?" I mean, you know, it's like you carry brushes. You know, it's like it's a thing. It's in your arsenal. You yep. have to do all of that stuff. You mentioned Tower of Power. Um, that was. Uh... When when you when you got that gig, I think it was in the nineties. There was a big there was a big modern drummer spread. Like that's that's when you got on my radar, and I think a lot of other drummers' radar. Right. Um, what was it? What was it like stepping into that gig and and having to fill the shoes of of an icon like Garibaldi, who is so singular and so unique and so specific to that band? Yeah. Um, what was what was your what was your approach to that, and how did how did the band sort of treat you? Um, what was that experience like? Well, the thing is, uh, Gary Baldy had already been out of the band for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came in after Russ McKinnon. Okay. Yeah, and he had played the gig for eight years, I think it was, yeah. you know. So, um, the, the, like all of us, you know, we grew up listening to Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we sit back and... We're all, you know, either with an LP or or with the cassette tapes or eight track tapes. We're sitting there going, "Wow!" <laughs> um, I used to play all the Tower of Power stuff on our breaks back in Houston. So, okay, so I moved to LA and I had the opportunity to play with a band called Funk Attack, where Bruce Conte had sat in, and that's how we met. Bruce Conte was one of the guitarists for Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, um, then there was a band with, with, uh, Rocco Prestia that I sat in with and played and, and, and uh, all of that led to 
me joining Tower of Power. So to answer your question, um, the whole Garibaldi thing, no one can play like Garibaldi. Right. Um, uh, all I had, I, uh, what I had to do or what I tried to do was honor the song. Mm-hmm. And and you know and 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 uh, you know if you're playing squib case you're gonna have to play that groove or have to play that drum lick you know um, so I did that now as far as feeling like Garibaldi I, I don't think anyone can I mean yeah. you know uh, he has a certain what's wonderful about that band is that the rhythm section and the horn section they all feel it the same way yeah and they all sort of either sit on top of it or slightly lean forward. Mm-hmm. And that's that's their pocket. Yeah, yeah. The total opposite from me. Mm-hmm. I I hang from the bottom of the beat. Yeah, and th- this was something I was wondering about because like, I, I saw you play in LA a couple times live. I've, I've heard you, obviously, and, and you, you, know, you are at the back of the beat, and it's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But I, I was wondering how, like, like you said, Tower of Power is way up on the front. Right. Um, so did right. you have to adjust to them, or did you meet in the middle? Or It was both. Mm-hmm. You know, there were certain things that you know Emilio would turn around and said, "You know, Sean, I'm, I'm going to need you to be on top of this one." You know, mm-hmm. um, but then the new music that came in, the music that I wrote for them, and the music that that uh, or the records that I played on, where they were taking a slightly different approach uh, and sometimes a, a more commercial approach. Mm-hmm. Um, they dug what I was doing, and mm-hmm. so everyone kind of sort of laid back on it. Yeah, um, which that that's great that they can do that. Right, right. Um, but but yeah, no, I had there are certain things I had to I had to jump on and lean forward. Now, last year I subbed for Garibaldi because he had the double hip replacement surgery, and uh, I know right. But now he's the bionic the bionic man. He's, <laughs> he's, they, they built him better and stronger and <laughs> and faster. And, oh, oh my goodness, he's, he's, he's playing his butt off now. Um, uh, he heard me at one of the gigs up where he was living, and he came out and he just kind of pulled me aside and said, "Man, it's like play the gig the way you play the gig. Mm. You can't." You can't do it like I do. And and he said, I can't play it like you. He mm-hmm. says, be you. And I was just saying that, well, Emilio wanted me to be on top for this thing. He says, hey, man, screw that. Be you. you know? <laughs> I said, well, that's easy for you to say. Yeah, yeah. Right. One of the founding members. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. yeah. But, um, so, but that, it's it's all a give and take. Mm-hmm. And um, I try and meet the guys in the middle and um, because I want to make them happy. Um, and, and that's the way I go on with every gig that I'm a sub on or yeah. if I'm taking someone's place. I write out all the charts and everything that they played. Mm-hmm. And not so much that I'm trying to put my flavor on it. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to honor what's there and what comes out is what I play. Yeah. And it, it seems like when, when you're in that situation, whether you're, whether you're subbing for a, a temporary stretch or whether you're going to be the new guy. Um, right. I think if you, if you, uh, you know, show an effort to honor what came before you make the band comfortable and, and, you know, try to execute, execute what they're used to, right. then like you'll gain some trust and a little bit of political capital to right. be able to contribute more and then they'll go more your way on, on some new thing. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I think a lot of drummers make the mistake of like, 
you know, from day one, like, I'm going to be me. I'm going to take this band in a different direction. Or the other yeah. extreme, I'm just going to try to be a clone of the dude before me. Right, right, know? right. I, I I can't, you know, I can't play like anyone else. I can only be me. Now, forever, oh, not forever, I should say. Uh, I mean, it's hard enough trying to find your own sound mm-hmm. or find your own direction, I guess. And um, like I said, you heard, you heard me play before. It, it wasn't that I... Yes, I do lay back. I, 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 I just feel things in a way. And, and I mean, even when working with the click and people say, why does it feel laid back? And you put the click on and it's right on. Mm-hmm. But it's just a thing where giving each note space, mm-hmm. you know, um, giving each groove its due and not... You know, I'm still trying hard not to rush my fills. Me too. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, it's like coming at, you know, you're playing the fill. I mean, it's and, and my fills have gotten simpler, but yep. still, you know, towards the end of it, it's like I'm just slightly on top. And I know it's just a natural thing, mm-hmm. but those are the things that I work on, you yeah. know. I still work with my metronome and just playing two and four and, and just, you know, try and make it feel good without it, Without it, like this intentional thing of, oh, he's just trying to hold it back. I want it to be comfortable. I right. want it to be, uh, you know, it's a groove. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, but that's, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned the fills because, like, I, I that's something I struggle with too. Still, I'll listen yeah. to I'll listen to something I recorded the night before from a gig because I record a lot of stuff on the phone or right, or, right, you know, just Garage Band or whatever. And it'll feel great in the moment, you know, yeah. right on it. And then I'll listen back to it. It's like, man, you, just, you pushed ahead again <laughs> on that right. little two beat fill. You just, you know, I know, right? Just couldn't help yourself. Yep. Um, I've I've been working on just not playing fills. Hey, I, I realized yeah. a few years ago, like I've I've regretted playing a fill a lot more often than I've regretted not playing a fill. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I same here, and I gotta say. I mean, this is part of not so much wanting to be the best drummer that I can be, but trying to be the best musician that I mm-hmm. can be. And I mean, and when I go on, I hear the young drummers. First of all, let me say, I'm thankful that these young drummers are coming up and, and they have so much talent and what they're doing with drumming. It, it's it blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, it is it's ridiculous yeah. what I'm hearing. The thing is, though, when I'm hearing us or when I'm listening to a song, I don't want to hear that left-handed, you know, uh, uh, inverted paradiddle uh, that's, that kicks off with the hi-hat, but bounce off the cowbell, nothing but lick, uh, you know, nothing but net kind of lick. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, that that interrupts things for me. I just want to, I want to feel the groove. Mm-hmm. And I find myself in my older age now, <laughs> uh, um, if someone's playing the pocket, my ears perk up. Me, yep, me too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm I'm young I'm younger than you and I'm right with you. So it, <laughs> you know I don't think it's an old age thing. I I just think we have good taste. Well, it's like <laughs> it's it is amazing. I mean, the guys that I grew up listening to were like Earl Palmer and mm-hmm. and, and Al Jackson Jr. and 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 the disciples of them, which is like Steve Jordan and and uh, uh, Charlie Drayton. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, I listened to uh, 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 Gatson. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, just it, nasty. It's like this. Exactly. I mean, there, it's it's about the groove of it all. Right. Um, and, and I'm not knocking everyone else who, uh, you know, you, you do what you can do in order to make it work. But it's just 
I just want to, I want to feel comfortable and I want to be comfortable listening yeah. too, you know? So, yeah. so that's the way it goes. My, my wife calls it being taken care of. Ah, there you go. Whether that's it's right. by a singer or an instrumentalist, she, you know, she'll say like, I felt really taken care of by that person. I trusted, uh, like I didn't, you know, I was never afraid that, you know, that singer was going to leave me hanging on a, on a weird out of tune note, or I was never afraid that that bassist was going to do a wicked lick over the singer's right. lyric. Like I felt right. taken care of. Right. 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 Um, talking about like the, the trends in drumming for like, for as long as you've been in the game, have you had trouble um, sort of resisting the urge to, to jump on a bandwagon or, uh, you know, incorporating a drumming trend into your playing? You know, when I'm when I'm behind the kid and I'm practicing and you know and it's got I've got stick control out there uh-huh. and, and and I'm doing my thing and I get the metronome on and I'm you know, I'm playing, you know, maybe you know, after about thirty, forty minutes or so, I'll I'll uh listen, let me check this one thing out. Yeah. I'll see something that I'll see something in modern drummer, you know, yeah. that somebody wrote out and all. Um if it's something that fits my character. Mm-hmm. Then I'll try and incorporate it, but you know it. More likely than not, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. You yeah. know, um, I, I'm, I'm a field drummer. You know, you know, you can give me a kick, snare, and a hat. Mm-hmm. I'll play two and four for you all night long <laughs> and be happy. Yep. You yep. know, um, but I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I do remember. You know, I would get that one, uh, a new piece of gear, that one China symbol, and I would put that, use it in every lick that I ever played <laughs> on every song and every ballad. But I mean, that was, that was in my youth. I, I, I don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I, once again, I'm, so I guess to answer your question, no. <laughs> <laughs> Another question I had about the sort of the, the Tower of Power days was in those in those videos and and pictures, your setup is like it, it's it's kind of like Ndugu's setup. Like you have the cymbals way up there, um, and the you know the toms are, are tilted toward you. And it seems like over time the cymbals came down and your toms flattened out. Oh yeah. Was that a gradual <laughs> process or was that uh, like an abrupt change you had to make to your setup? Like why did that happen? Well, you know what before I. The whole symbols being up high, it was a, it was one. And Dugu is, is one of my favorite drummers. So, yeah, and what a wonderful cat. Uh, that and also too watching Steve Jordan on the Letterman show. Mm-hmm. You know, symbols were up, and then either I heard an interview or maybe I talked to him, but he did that because of the cameras, right? You know, mm-hmm. so you know they could see him. Um, uh, and then as a racquetball player, I ran into the wall and jammed my shoulder. Oh, man. Okay, so so that symbol that used to be up here <laughs> came down here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, 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 uh, yeah, it gradually uh, it all came down. And I started thinking, why am I doing that? I mean, I, I guess the only other drummer that I know that makes that kind of happen, that Albino Bennett still plays with his... Uh, Symbols up high, mm-hmm. um, and Ndugu no, still does. Yeah, 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 yeah. He sure does. He does. He sure does. Um, I just just makes sense to bring it all down. And yeah. Who am I kidding? You know, it's just yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it, it seems like as the setup changed, like the 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 sound changed. Also, you went towards yeah. the bigger, round, warm, 
you know, yes. drum sound from as opposed to the Tower of Power thing, which was right. tight, you know. Well, you know, even before Tower of Power, um, you know, I started getting into bigger drums. Mm -hmm. But then when Tower came about, you know, I went back to, you know, I had to find the piccolo snare. Right. You know, and find, I, although I did play a 24-inch bass drum mm -hmm. with Tower of Power. Wow. Uh, I, I played 24-inch bass drum. I think I played a 10-inch tom and a 14 or 15 inch time with uh -huh. Tower of Power. Yeah. Um, but uh, after that, yeah, my, you know, now I'm playing a 13, a 15, an 18, and I play a, a 14 by 24 or either a 14 by 26 inch bass drum. Oof. So now everything is about air yeah. and about warmth and about, once again, uh, uh, each note has space, mm -hmm. you know, um, I played the big cymbals as well. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, my go-to studio, go-to, you know, cymbal setup, 24 inch ride, um, uh, 22 inch crash, 21 inch crash, 17 inch hi-hats. Whoa. You know, that, that have, uh, they sound sweet. They, they feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, with Timothy and even with, I was out with uh, the actor Hugh Laurie. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I love I love that dude's records. Oh, and aren't they great? Yeah. But with that whole sound, you know, I was playing a twenty six inch ride, a twenty four inch crash, mm -hmm. uh, seventeen hats. With Timothy, I play between the seven uh, between the sixteens and the eighteen inch hats, depending on. And and the only reason why I'm playing the things that big because. It has warmth. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's not about volume, right? You know, right. it's it's all about the vibe. It's yeah. all about the the warmth. And with symbols that big, that thin, that dark, it stays out of the range of the vocals. Yep. You know, so that's this is that's something my deal. This is something I talked about with Jameson Ross. Um, ah. and, uh, you know, the range of the drums versus the range of the vocals, and and also. Um, you know how finding finding your sound on the drums like you you have to marry the sound of the drums with your tendency as a player yeah you know and i i told him about in in my younger jazz days i was playing like the 18 inch bass drum tuned way up yeah <laughs> you know the bop the bop tuning on on the toms and i realized like that that tuning and the way the drums felt and sounded to me made me play in such a way that wasn't really me that didn't feel comfortable right. right and as soon as i started using bigger drums and dropped the tuning a little bit like i just the way that sound and that feel made me play like it made me come up with different ideas and right you know that i felt better about right it was more you right? Yeah. Right? yeah 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 i understand that i understand that yeah. um i don't know it, the bigger drums and, and i still <coughs> excuse me i know that uh, the players in clubs, they're going like like the bass player is going to a smaller bass rig, but it has more punch in it. And, it's, and so, in order for me to really have my sound, I mean, on some club gigs, I'll bring a twenty six inch bass drum out. Mm -hmm. And once again, it's not about volume. Yeah, it's just there's a sound, and it's that that groove or that that the the, the feeling of the the kick drum that hits you. Yeah, right here. I mean, just not very hard, but just. Right. And so that with the big symbols, there's this warm sound, you know, mm -hmm. so it, it, it makes shuffles really special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah. talk about that, that Hugh Laurie gig, because like I was, I was given uh, that CD, I think it was the first one he did. I was right. given that as a gift. 
Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really on my radar, but I was I was starting to get into like roots music and New Orleans music and, right. and I listened to it. I was like, Well, this dude sings his ass off. Yeah. And these are great no. songs and a yeah. killing band. Yeah. Um, so and, and it seems like, you know, between that and and Timothy Schmidt and other other uh acts that you play with, like like we were talking about earlier, you're kind of known as the Tower of Power guy. Right. But when it comes down to it, you have like a real affinity and a and a real uh connection and skill for this kind of roots country well, you know, right. that kind of stuff. Well, being from Texas and my mom being from Louisiana and hanging from you know, we're from Houston, so therefore New Orleans is just what, uh, you know, three and a half hours away or right. uh, um and hanging out down, you know, in the wards and listening to all the people do their thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah, that music really hits home. I say it hits home. It's the music I grew up on. Yeah, you know. So um, uh, uh, the thing with with Hugh, uh, well, let's say first of all, Jay Bellarose was the drummer that played on both records, mm-hmm. and Jay was 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 um, tired of being on the road. I guess you know, and, and wanted to be home more. Right. So he came and asked if I would do, you know, the, the last tour, mm-hmm. um, which that last tour lasted, I think about two and a half years, um, <laughs> uh, which is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, 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 so, um, yeah, working with Hugh Laurie, Hugh, uh, I guess his first thing, he's a comedian. Mm-hmm. So that, and, and, but he's played piano every day. Right. And, um, he has, uh, as a matter of fact, he has a certain love for Professor Longhair. Oh yeah. So so he would play that every day, like on the set. Even I think on uh, the TV show House. Yeah. He would either play guitar or piano or, or something. So he, yeah, right. He had his love for that music, um, and so he he made that record. He made two records that uh, that was honoring that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it was amazing because. Um, with him being talented, I mean, he was a um, he was a front man. He was the MC. He was the court gesture. Right. You right. know, um, <laughs> uh, he he was all of that. And I gotta say, each show was what two and a half hours plus. Mm-hmm. You know, man. And I mean, it didn't seem like it. Yeah. It you know a very talented band. Um, it, it really was amazing. I mean, the music was great. It all felt good. Everyone was really authentic. Yeah. When it came to playing that, mm-hmm. and I mean, to the point where I mean, I think I was the most. Un- I wasn't as authentic as I should have been because Jay Bellarose played. I mean, you know, you know, drums, calfskin drums. Yeah. And, and I mean, he was he was all of the stuff that that sounded. That sounded great in the studio, but when I heard it live, it just kind of went ah. So, <laughs> so what I tried to do <laughs> is take the modern drum kit and just put thicker heads on it mm-hmm. and bigger drums and made it breathe in that way. Bassists and drummers seem to kind of pair off in LA. Yeah, um, like you know, a good friend of mine is uh, Jamie Tate. And, oh, yeah. you know, if he's on the gig, chances are David Hughes is on bass. And right. if Russ Kunkel is doing a session, chances are it's with Lee Sklar. And, right. you know, Peter Erskine and Chuck Berghofer, Derek Oles or whatever. So Correct. Do, you, do, you have a, do you have a bass buddy? Do you have a, a, a bassist that you're with more often than not? Um, yeah. I mean, I always, 
I try and you know I can play with anyone. <laughs> but you know what? You're absolutely right. There's a Dwayne Smitty Smith, who um, is the bassist. Uh, he's now in a band that I play with, uh, um, uh, Greg Adams and East Bay Soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not a bassist for that, and I got him on that gig. Uh, he also plays bass with Boney James, and uh, he's that guy. Yeah, he he feels it the way I feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and we have a, we've been in several bands together and, um, as a matter of fact, we're trying to get some past tapes so we can remaster everything and get some stuff done and put it out there for the people to hear. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I I guess Smitty Smith, uh, when, when Larry Compel lived here in town, I did a lot of work with him. He's the basis now with Frankie Beverly and Mays. Um, I've had opportunities of playing with Lee Scalar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're part of a rhythm section for a producer who does a lot of you know records here in town. Uh, Dean Parts, Lee Scalar, and myself. Um, the thing is, though, I look at those guys, they're able to play with anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, so they put up with me. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, so uh, the other night, I... I uh, and I've done a handful of gigs with him. I played with Alfonso Johnson. Oh yeah, and um, and and and, and uh, Bob Glob. You know the the guys who definitely understand the grassroots of things. I get along with better, I guess. Right. Terry Wil- Terry Wilson, who is I want to say not many people know who he is, but he's one of those bass players that. Uh, who's been everywhere mm-hmm. and um, you know, he's played with a lot of people and to a certain degree, a mentor of mine when it comes down to Texas roots or Texas R and B or Texas soul music as we call it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is a lot of, um, uh, you know, the whole give and take kind of thing and the push and pull, you know, the swinging, yeah. the, the swinging straight eighth note kind of feeling of things right. and all that. So um, yeah, there are a handful of bass players that I play with. Those names that I gave you are the guys that I play with most often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I don't know. So I don't know. Hopefully they're, hopefully they're, they're as happy with me as I am with them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. that's the case. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, like when the you were talking about the Tom Jones gig. You know, you said I'm I'm a guy who's willing to have a conversation about like if you think we're making too much money. Let's let's talk about that. And it reminded me of um, a, an interview, like it was an article about Kenny Aronoff. Um, right. Interview with him. It was about five years ago, and he was talking about how, um, you know, the the music business is much different than it was when he started out, and that's yeah. that's caused him to like you know, producers or engineers or artists will come to him nowadays and say, man, I, I really want you on this session or I really want you on this tour, but I know I can't afford you. And can you yeah. say, well, tell me what you can afford. Let's talk about it. So like, right. have, have you had to, have you had to do the same thing over the course of your career? And how has your, how has your negotiating tactics sort of changed with the changes <laughs> in the music industry? Yeah. I think we've all had, we've had to make uh, those adjustments. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, there are people. You know, when they come up and they ask, you know, they say, "Look, I can't. I, I, I know you're worth more than than this here." And yeah, the question is, well, how much can you afford? Mm-hmm. And um, and it comes down to if, well, you know, it really comes down to if that person's an asshole or not. You know, <laughs> if, 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 if they're nice people, then I'll work with them. And with 
my thing is that then let's do the next one again. You know, right. let's do let's do and let's keep it going. Let's you know, um, uh, as an old friend would say, oatmeal is better than no meal. So, <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, um, uh, 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 I, I did a record. And I'm going to name drop here. I did a record uh, with Freddie Washington on bass, um, which is another bass player who I did a lot of work with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Freddie Washington on bass, uh, Louise, uh, I'm sorry, um, who was it? Dean Parks on guitar, and um, come on, the percussionist, come on, come on, Toto, uh, um, uh, Castro, Castro. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so we all um, kind of sort of had to renegotiate things only because, you know, the cat said, look, I really want all of you guys on this. Mm-hmm. I and, and, I, and, I, and I admire all you guys. And, and I had my favorite records with you guys on it, you know. So, so is there any way you can do me a solid on this? And, mm-hmm. and I mean, and, and, and now I didn't realize this until they came to me and said, hey, man, did you have to renegotiate? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? So um, uh, it, it happens from, you know, time to time. Um, um, but it's hard, too, also when I see that. Things are going up out there. I mean, you know, you can't get a burger out there nowadays for under a certain price. And, yeah. And um, and they're asking us musicians to kind of take a hit sometimes. And mm-hmm. and um, you know, you have to weigh those two things and and uh, and talk to them. But but also, I know that there's another guy out there, another guy out there who would do it for less than half of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah, I guess you have to kind of be careful and be thankful and, and you know, but, and also try and keep your integrity. And, right. Uh, you right. know, so it's, it's, it's not easy. It's business. Yeah. And, and it's one of those business, businesses where, you know, you have younger, more talented and people who are willing to do it for free um, or next to it. Um, and they're better looking too. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know. Uh, that's that's the way it goes. Well, I think especially in LA, there's um, like being, regardless of what you're getting paid, being seen to be busy and, yeah. and out there and working is is you know capital in itself. It is, um, and I think that's where you know you you mentioned the the local gigs you do in between the sessions and the tours or whatever, right? Um, right. It, that's that's a way for you to stay active and sort of stay at at the forefront of people's minds is it not yeah it is it is yeah um it is and 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 like i said it's hard to tell a mortgage company that hey um you know I'm, you know I, i'm busy i'm being seen you know but, <laughs> but but you know but no it, it all helps though it does it all helps mm-hmm. it all helps and i try my best to uh and you know it has to be fun yeah. I mean, when you're playing the local gigs and all that and, and i've gotten to the point where when I do get a call and where it's not fun, it's not so much that I'll do. I don't turn it down, but it's just that thing of they're few and far between now. Mm-hmm. The gigs that are not fun. Right. So, you know, I've managed to, you know, make those friends who can play good music and, and, and thankfully they still need a drummer from time to time. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I think it's a, it's a misconception about, about, um, being a professional musician and, and, and playing at the level you do with the resume you have. Um, mm. Like when I was, when I was younger, I was under the impression that once you, once you reached a certain level, once you had certain things on your resume, that was all you did. 
Right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, as I, as I got more experienced, I realized like, yeah, th- you know, those are the highlights of people's resumes. Right. Right. But in, in between they're playing at Cafe Cordial and baked potato and, and yeah. local places they're doing wedding gigs or corporate stuff. Um, you, all those things cats are doing. And, you know, the other thing that I see, I mean, you know, guys with the economy and with everything kind of being what it is, people are not giving up their gigs like they used to in the old days. Yeah. Everybody's holding on to everything, you know. Yeah. You know, so um, I played at so, Disneyland so for four years, yeah. and and there were guys there, mainly horn players, that would do like nationally or international touring gigs with right. uh, like Brian Setzer or Johnny Holiday or you know whatever. And before I got there, I I would think that like once you get a gig like that, like who needs Disneyland? What do you? But you know. <laughs> It's not year-round. Those gigs aren't year-round. They're for a month or six weeks. And right. they came back to Disneyland, and they were back in New Orleans Square, you know? Doing right, right. There. right. So, yeah, exactly. you're, you're right. Guys are hanging on to stuff as yeah. best they can. Indeed. Indeed they are. Yeah. Indeed they are. And I can't blame them. I'm not mad at them for that. No. I'm hanging on, I'm hanging on to everything I got. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep hanging on, man. Thank you so much for, for talking with us. It was great to see you. Zach, you're amazing, man. Thank you so much. All right. Love that talk with Herman. Thanks again to him for his time. It's no wonder he stays so busy because in addition to being such a great drummer, he's just a fun guy to talk with, good to be around. And as we've heard on the podcast many times before, the hang is just as important as the music. Matt Krause is back with you next week for our first episode of 2017. I hope good things await us all in the coming year. Be careful out there on New Year's Eve, whether you're playing or partying. Thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and as always, thanks for listening.